Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. Today's reading comes from Colossians 1, 13 to 23. He has delivered us from the dark... Nope. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister, the grass withers and the flowers fade. Awesome. Thanks, David. I tri- tripped him up, so uh, I asked him just before the service started to read that. So, <laughs> You did a great job. You did a great job. <laughs> so kids, you're more than welcome to head on out. We do have EGC this morning, which is third to fifth grade. So skedaddle. For those of you that I haven't met yet, my name is Joel Waymack. I'm one of the pastors or elders here at Refuge. And Um, You guys are all in luck. You get to hear from me for the next three weeks. Whoa. (laughs) Watch out, Trey. I'm coming for your job. (laughs) So before Advent and Christmas seasons, all the way back in Thanksgiving of last year, and even before that, we were going through the Sermon on the Mount, which is where Jesus goes through and he lays out for his people, for his disciples, and overall for his people, what does the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven look like? What are the ethical commands? How are people supposed to live in light of this kingdom that they're in? And your luck, we're going to jump back into the Sermon on the Mount at the end of this month, and we're going to go all the way through until about Easter time in Sermon on the Mount. But to get us re-engaged in the Sermon on the Mount and what Jesus is talking about there we're going to take a moment and we're going to take a step back and we're going to ask a few questions over the next three weeks. So this morning and the next two weeks, we're going to ask this fundamental question. Who is this king? Who is this king over this kingdom? And then in response, what is this kingdom? So we're going to ask these two questions. Who is this king and what is this kingdom? And so I encourage you this morning and over the next two weeks, as we talk through this passage 
have those two questions lingering in your mind. Who is this king and what is this kingdom? So let me pray for us and we'll jump in. Father God, I thank you for your goodness and your graciousness to us, that we can come together as your people, that we can open up your word, that we can understand your truth. I pray that this morning, Spirit, that you work in our minds, helping us understand what is written, and I pray that you also work in our hearts, drawing our affections to our good King. It's in his name we pray, amen. So I don't know about you, but I love stories about kings and rulers. Um, a few of my favorites. I love the movie Gladiator, uh, if you've ever seen it. Uh, side note, if you want to feel old, that came out almost a quarter of a century ago. It came out in 2000. Ah. But the story of Gladiator is about Maximus, who is this general over the army of the current emperor of the Roman Empire, uh, Marcus Aurelius. And Marcus Aurelius is about to die, and he, he realizes that his own son, Commodus, is not, in his own words, a moral man. And so Marcus Aurelius decides that he's going to adopt Maximus, this general over his armies, to become the next emperor over the Roman Empire. And so um, he goes and he tells Commodus, you're not going to be emperor. And Commodus decides, well, that's not cool with me. And so he kills Marcus Aurelius and takes over the Roman Empire, becomes emperor. And the entire story, uh, beside it being a revenge story, because Commodus then goes and kills off, you know, Russell Crowe's family and everything else, uh, beside it being a, you know, a revenge story where he, you get a lot of cool action scenes, it's also a story of contrast between two kings. The first king, Commodus, being immoral, weak, manipulative, scheming, domineering, and this picture of who should be rightful king, Maximus, who's loyal and strong and wise and good. And the story is actually a story of contrast between these two would-be kings. So another story that I really enjoy about kings or rulers, uh, Laura, my wife, and I just finished The Crown on Netflix. It's a series around Elizabeth II and her rule and reign, fictionalized, remember that. But at the very beginning of the story, uh, Elizabeth's father dies, somewhat unexpectedly for her, and she assumes the throne, and everyone is asking the question, what is her rule and reign going to be like? Is she going to be wise? Is she going to be strong? Is she going to be manipulated by the political powers that be? Is she going to be concerned about her kingdom? Is she going to show this regal face of the monarchy? Like, what is her rule and reign going to look like? And throughout the series, you see her kind of galvanize into the queen. It's a great series, recommend it, it's a great story. Or another one of my favorites, The Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Surprise. Uh, in it, Aragorn is this wandering ranger, but you find out that he's actually supposed to be the king of this large city. And the, throughout the story, you kind of ask the question, if he takes on the throne, which, surprise, spoiler alert, he will, what is his rule and his reign going to be like? And you see through his character in the wanderings of this troop, the fellowship, and as they go and try and destroy the ultimate evil, you see him exuding characteristics of loyalty and compassion and care and strength. And you know when he assumes the throne at the very end, that this is going to be the picture of what his kingdom is going to be like. 
his character is naturally transferred into how the kingdom operates and lives. It's a great story. Once again, I recommend it. So over and over and over again, we see these stories of rulers and kingdoms, and there's something compelling to these stories. We have this innate longing within us to see good and righteous rulers reigning in peace and justice, or bad rulers like Commodus to be removed from power. And I think when we listen to these stories, we're always asking the question, who is this ruler? What will they be like as they're ruling? Are they gonna be kind and compassionate? Are they gonna be tyrannical and domineering? Are they gonna be righteous and just? And likewise, we, un- we wonder about their kingdoms as well, since the kingdom often reflects the ruler. Will it be a domain of peace and prosperity or hatred and mistrust? or goodness and faithfulness. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus sets forth what the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, will look like. What types of actions, what types of ethics, what types of lifestyles will the people inside of this kingdom hold? What will the subjects of this kingdom look like? But really, the vision is what the kingdom will look like as a reflection of the character of the king. Just like in these stories that our hearts are drawn to, that we love to watch, we love to listen to, the kingdom takes on the characteristics of the king. And so as we jump back into the Sermon on the Mount, it's important for us to ask once again, who is this king? What is his character? What will this rule and reign look like? And by extension, what will this kingdom be? So that's where we're at this morning. We're going to take, like I said, this morning and the next two weeks and look at this same passage over and over, and we're going to dive deep into it and see who is this king. So in this passage, it's really part of Paul's letter to the church in Colossae, and what he's trying to do is he's trying to do exactly what our question is. He's trying to describe who this king is, and he's trying to give us, and we'll see that this is really a very compelling picture that he paints we start to see the character of this king expressed both in what he has done and what he will one day do. And I will say that my heart, and I'm guessing your heart, can't help but be drawn to this king and to long to be part of this kingdom. So let me read read a portion of this again. So we're going to focus in this morning on verses 13 through 17. He, God the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He, King Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Amen. So I'm going to make a shocking statement. Prepare yourself. Jesus is God. Nothing. Okay. You guys don't look that shocked. If we take a step back and we think about this for a second, this should kind of be shocking news to us. 
Sure, if you've been around the church or in a church setting for a while, this is probably not new news, but this should be kind of surprising or shocking. A person, a human being, is God? Think about the nature of God for a second. As we see him kind of revealed in scripture, he's always existed. Before our universe had form and function, before light flew out into the cosmos, he was there in perfect love and relationship within his triune self. He created all things, every star, planet, moon, tree, plant, animal, person, everything was created, was given form and function by him. Not only that, he holds the universe, everything, together by his desire and his will. The sun comes up every day and sets every day because he ordains it. At this very moment, the gravity that's keeping your butts in your seats is by his will and his design and his purpose. Babies grow to adults because he has ordained and continues to sustain the biological processes that cause development and continue to give life. All of this happens according to his good design or his merciful forbearance, everything. This is the God that we're talking about. And in this passage, Paul declares that Jesus is God. And by ascribing these types of works to Jesus, he's saying Jesus is this creator, this sustainer, he is God himself. Listen again to verses 16 and 17. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, various angelic powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Paul is declaring Jesus as king over all creation because he is God. He created all things. He is the end of all things. They were, everything was made to experience the goodness of Jesus' reign and to give him glory. King Jesus is God. This man, Jesus, is God. Now, it's important to note, <clears throat> kind of as we're reading this and thinking through what's being said here, Jesus isn't a creature. He isn't a created being. Some of the language here, like, firstborn of creation might make you, make you think on first glance that he is a creature, but it doesn't make sense. If here it says that he created all things, did he create himself? Like that just doesn't make sense. So at first glance, you might think that, but instead in calling him firstborn, what Paul is trying to do is he's trying to denote preeminence and honor and authority over all creation. Everything that was created finds its end and its purpose in him, and therefore he deserves all honor and authority. So this language here that we see of creation, of created things, of God working in this way, and therefore Jesus working in this way, it should really draw us back to the very beginning of the story as well. The language is, is very much the same. And that's where we get this picture, this fuller picture of God being king over all creation. So going back and thinking through Genesis 1 will help us. We see the, our triune God going through and creating all things. So think about this with me for a moment. 
This picture in Genesis 1 is God hovering over the wildness and waste. It's a better translation, without form and void. And he, over the course of six days, creates, gives form and function and purpose to everything. In the first three days, he creates three domains. The domain of time, he creates light and dark, day and night. He creates the domain above and below of the sky and the sea. He creates a third domain of the earth, of land and vegetation. And then the subsequent three days, he goes through and he fills each of these domains with its rulers. The domain of time, he places the sun and moon and stars to rule over time and give seasons. He gives the domain above and below their rulers of birds and fish to rule over the skies and the seas. And in the domain of earth, he gives animals to rule over the land. And then at the very end of his creative process, he creates something in his own image to rule over all of creation. He creates humankind to rule and reign. And then on the seventh day, he rests. If you have kids uh, and you've spent an entire day trying to manage the chaos, you might be like me at the end of my days where you sit down on the couch and you're like, oh my gosh, I just need to rest. I just need a moment. That's not what God is doing here on the seventh day. He's not like, oh, I just need rest. That's not him. Instead, God is sitting down to rule and reign. The entire creation account is God going through and setting up his cosmic temple, which is actually all of creation, his cosmic throne room. And then he sits down and rests so that he will sit down on his throne and start to rule and reign in his holy throne room. That's the picture that we see in Genesis 1. He's sitting down to rule and reign over all of creation. That means that in his rest, he is not a far-off or distant creator king. He didn't finish winding up creation and then letting it loose and say, let's see what happens. He didn't start it off and then sit down and rest and say, mm, I'm tired, I'm done. Don't screw it up, people. This isn't the picture that we see of this God. Instead, he's sitting down to rule and reign as an intimate God king who cares about the workings of all of his creation. Paul says that this image that we see of God in Genesis 1 of rule, sitting down to rule and reign is the same Jesus that he is speaking of. Jesus is this God king who isn't an aloof ruler. He's intimately involved in every aspect of his domain. In him, all things hold together. When we ask who is this king, he's a good ruler who cares about his kingdom. He cares about all of creation. He's involved with the details of ruling and governing well. But in Jesus, God is going a step further than just ruling and reigning over creation in kind of, a, in kind of like an overarching sense. Our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit is not simply sitting in the cosmic throne room and ruling from on high. Instead, in Jesus, we see God incarnate in the flesh. This is what we just celebrated in Christmas. And this should be shocking 
to us. That this God, sitting in his temple of creation, sitting in his throne room on high, has decided to enter into his creation, to take creation on himself. It's like the stories where a good ruler decides to cover themselves up and go out into the kingdom and see how are their people living. What is this kingdom like among the everyday, ordinary people? God is so involved in the workings of his kingdom and creation that Jesus, the eternal son of our triune God, became flesh to dwell with us in his kingdom and among his people to be in his domain. This is what we see in verses 15 and verses 19 here. He is the image of the invisible God, and for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Paul is saying that Jesus is God king in the flesh. He can be touched. He can be seen. He can be heard. He got hungry and he ate. He got thirsty and he drank. He got tired and he slept. He got sad and he wept. And yet, this is God. Not a far-off transcendent God, but here in creation in his kingdom. Jesus is God king over creation and he enters into it. So who is this king? He's the king who enters into his own creation, experiences it, knows it intimately and continues to uphold it. This is the picture of a good king who cares about his kingdom. And yet, this kingdom, this domain, has rebelled against its good king. Creation is in rebellion against the good king Jesus. This is what Paul describes at the very beginning of this passage. And he describes it as a competing kingdom. Not so much as just like there's a king and a kingdom and there's some random rebels running around, but it's a competing kingdom that we see. In verses 13 and 14, it says, He, God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The domain of darkness that we see here is in contrast to the kingdom of light that is ruled by Jesus. It is in rebellion against God's rule. Once again, jumping all the way back to the beginning, because it sets the stage for all that follows in Scripture. We jump all the way back to the beginning of the story in Genesis, in chapter 3. We'll see the domain of darkness starting to take root. The original in-the-flesh image bearers that God created in Genesis 1, Adam and Eve, were meant to have dominion over all of creation as sub-rulers under God's kingship. They didn't create everything like Jesus did. They weren't God in the flesh, but they were made in his image, with his breath, in his likeness, commissioned to have dominion over the kingdom, to act as princes and princesses in the kingdom. But in the midst of the kingdom of light and life, a domain of darkness invades. In Genesis 3, as I'm about to read, we see a snake, a serpent who twists God's word and causes man and woman to doubt that God is a good king. And in causing them to doubt, he causes them to rebel and reject their God-king's commands. So this is Genesis 3, chapters, or verses 1 through 7. 
Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate, lest you think it's only the woman's fault. Then the eyes of, the, of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. God gave them one command, not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the midst of the garden. But through the lies and the deceitfulness of the serpent, they thought God was holding out on them. They wanted to be wise like God. They wanted to be the rulers of their own domains. And so they believed the lie about God that he was holding out on them and they rebelled and they ate of the tree. But instead of becoming rulers of their own new domains, instead of becoming like God, they became slaves in a new kingdom. A kingdom that was the opposite of God's good kingdom. A kingdom of darkness where Satan the serpent reigns. And this domain of darkness takes on the character of its ruler. It's a domain where lies and deceit are the norm. Where the image of God is destroyed through killing and murder. Where hatred and revenge simmer at the bullying point where good relationships are broken through distrust and infidelity, where creation itself rebels against these humans bringing sickness and death, where people hoard money pursuing greedy gain at the expense of others, where people selfishly guard their time because they don't want to be inconvenienced by the needs of others. Slaves in the kingdom of darkness are trying to set up their own little domains, but really, they're just part of an overarching domain of darkness. This is true for all of us. Every descendant of Adam and Eve is born into sin and death, born into slavery in the domain of darkness, with no hope of ever leaving this kingdom of darkness. And no desire to leave it either. Brothers and sisters, those of us that claim Jesus as king, this was us. This was us. We were born into slavery in the domain of darkness. But not just born and held there against our own wills, but we actively participated in the darkness. We propped it up and we enjoyed it. We, our desire to be, was to be in this kingdom. Even if we lied to ourselves and said, ah, oh, you know, we're exhibiting traits of the kingdom of light. We're essentially good people. It's fine. Slaves in the kingdom of darkness are really good at listening to the lies of the ruler of that domain and believing that, mm, you 
know, we're really living good lives. But King Jesus, in his love and his forbearance, exposes these lies, and we see him explicitly do that in the Sermon on the Mount that we've already studied so far. He exposes this domain of darkness that's lurking in every heart. Listen to some of these phrases. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Yikes. I don't know about you, but there's aspects of that that I have seen in my own life. What about this? You have heard that it, that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I mean, just look at the, the, the world around us. Advertisements flying where they're trying to sell everything across the board from burgers to clothing through sex. Lust is all around us. Listen to this, another one from Jesus. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Man, in our current political climate, especially coming up onto another election cycle, love your enemies and pray for them. Man, I don't see that happening. Satan whispers into the ear of slaves in his domain, you're essentially a good person. You're essentially a part of the kingdom of light. But Jesus breaks through, and part of him being the king of light is exposing the darkness, exposing the lie, exposing the sin, exposing the slavery. And like I said, we were without hope of being delivered from the domain of darkness but the rightful God King Jesus had a different plan. He, God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Our God King has broken our shackles and transferred us into into the kingdom of his beloved son What we could not do, what we would not do, what we had no desire to do, he accomplished for us, returning us to the kingdom we were always supposed to be part of. We, rebellious lovers of darkness, have been redeemed from slavery to the the domain of darkness. We have been forgiven of our rebellion and our sin. We now live in this kingdom of the beloved son, who is not far off and distant, but who has taken on flesh and entered into his kingdom to be near. So who is this king? He is God in the flesh. He is the creator. He holds all things together. He deserves all glory and honor. He's broken the chains of slavery. He's rescued us from the domain of darkness. And in his love, he brings us rebellious people back into his kingdom. This is the king. So to end, I want to give you a practice, and it's gonna be the same practice over these next three weeks. Every single week, I want you to try and do the same thing. I want you to meditate 
on this passage, specifically Colossians 1, 15 through 20. And I want you to meditate on it in a way that you may not have done before. I want you to actually go through and try and memorize this passage, Colossians 1, 15 through 20. I want you to try and let it soak into your mind and drip into your, deep into your soul so that when the question arises, who is this king, you have a ready answer. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you did not leave us in the domain of darkness, but instead, through your design and your plan, Jesus, your son, has brought us back out of darkness, out of slavery, out of sin and shame, and brought us into his good kingdom. I pray that you help us trust and hope and endure in these truths this week as the domain of darkness continues to lie. And I pray that we, as your people, can experience the goodness and hope of being under a good king. It's in our king, Jesus' name, that we pray. Amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.